Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Would you all please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7? This week we'll begin with verse 14. Romans chapter 7, beginning with verse 14. Thank you, uh, musicians, and especially Alex this morning for your sweet lament. Thank you. We will miss you. But we trust God. All right. Let's hear the word of the Lord, which is eternally true. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of a flesh, sold into bondage to sin, for what I am doing I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want... I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know that I have uh, consistently quoted Doug Moo as I've gone through the book of Romans. Doug is a professor up at Wheaton College. Uh, He has written what most would say is the most important of the modern commentaries on Romans. It's yay thick. Uh, It is uh, extremely expensive. And the royalties are very good on that book, and he has done good work, and that's why everybody pays so much money for his book. So I have felt that rather than uh, reading just dead guys, that I should always make a discipline of reading somebody that's actually alive when I'm dealing with different books of the Bible. And so Doug Moo has been the, the living scholar that I have read consistently as I go through the book of Romans. At this point in the book of Romans, Doug Moo has a section where he says that this is one of the most argued over texts in all of Scripture, right where we are right now, and he says that probably no Scripture does your prior commitments theologically have more influence in how you understand the text than this text. So what he's saying is that the way we approach Scripture as a whole, our, our systematic theology, is going to influence us here at this place in our understanding of Romans 7 more than other places of Scripture. Okay? And what he says is that everyone who writes, that as he reads them, and he doesn't say it this personally, but he says as he reads them, He says, you know, that it's obvious that instead of just coming to the text with pure objectivity and reason and logic as a scholar should, 
You know how scholars are always able to separate themselves from their commitments theologically and personally. You know how scholars are objective in their pursuit of truth, right? I I mean, I'm speaking with my tongue in cheek, right? (laughs) I'll never forget reading in the New York Times Sunday Magazine back about 35 years ago an article on chemists where this guy was going and uh, hanging out with a famous chemist, you know, somebody that won a Nobel Prize, you know, for chemistry or something. I mean, it was at the very top of the heap. And this guy said that he went to a meeting of chemists and they were sitting in a circle and he turned this, this eminent chemist that he was hanging with and doing a profile, turned to him in the meeting and he said, I can tell you the political commitments of every person in this circle by their published work in chemistry. New York Times. Chemistry. And I learned something right there, which is all the stuff where we talk about how we are observers of our own objective pursuit of truth which is maybe the highest conceit of modern scholarship. All right? None of us are above our prior commitments. None of us approach a text. And maybe if there's anything good that's come out of the whole, you know, English lit deconstructionist movement, (laughs) it's that, that we have to be aware of the degree to which we will not see what a text is saying to us if we're opposed to it in person. And man, if you come to any text and have to see your ability to twist it, it has to be Scripture. Because God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And so if we don't come to the text of Scripture and get hammered with the fact that God's thoughts aren't our thoughts, we're not involved in a disinterested pursuit of God's truth, let me tell you. And so in some ways, I guess I respect people that say that they don't believe the Bible has no errors, you know, because at least they're honest, whereas the rest of us say that we believe in the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture, and then we just, we are just absolutely rebels against it, you know. You got to respect the people that just say, no, it's not God's word, it's man's word. Now, of course, it's not what I believe. It's not what Scripture testifies about itself. Now, the reason I'm bringing all this up this morning is if Doug Moo, up at Wheaton, universally respected by people who keep track of the terminal degree and publications, okay, he says that this text we've reached is a dividing point for everyone and that everyone approaches this text with prior commitments theologically that caused them to come down on one side or the other of the critical decisions you have to make about this text, then I want to start by saying that. We all should be suspicious of our understanding of Romans 7. Of course, though, what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. And that also means that we should be very suspicious of Doug Moo. And Doug Moo makes it very clear that Romans 7 is not talking about Christians, it's talking about unbelievers. Okay? 
So when you read this text, keep it up, please. So when you read this text, Doug Moose says that when we go to the word we, you see that word we, that that actually isn't you and me, but it's the little pig that went we, 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 we all the way home. That's a joke. But usually the word we means usn't. Okay, but he says it doesn't mean usn. Do you understand that? We know Paul is not talking about himself and the Romans. Paul is talking about some external uh, group of people that he's making common cause with in a way that will help everybody. Now, you know that the Apostle Paul is capable of doing that. You know he does that at times in the text. He says we, identifying with the people he's writing to. But that doesn't mean we. He's not talking about himself, and he's not talking. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I. Now, what Doug Moose says is that word I doesn't mean I. Now, that word I, I said to you last week, occurs how many times in verses 13 through 25? Do any of you remember? Verses 13 to the end, I'm sorry. It occurs 39 times. The whole chapter is what I gave you last week, I'm sorry. So, from 13 on, me, I, or my occur 39 times. It's the Greek word ego. And he says, for we know that the Lord, but I am of flesh. And he says, when he says I there, he's referring to the Jew who is trying to keep the law, but is not a Christian. That's what the meaning of I is, okay? I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin for what I am doing. Now, Here's another interesting thing. Am doing is what? In, in, in grammar, what, what's the word for the tense? It's a present participle. It's an ongoing present action, okay? Now, would you please take me back to uh, the first half of the chapter? Okay, now, I want you to watch the tense. Not yet, but let's start from the beginning. Or do you not know, brethren, from I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives, for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's living, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. If her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, so she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law. Now note that tense. What is it? I don't know what it is. It may be plu, pustule. I mean, I'm not good at grammar, but it's not present, right? It's past. Okay, you also were made to die to the law through the body so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, notice the tense. What is it? It's past. While we were in the flesh, the sinful passion, which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit. But now we have been released from the law. So present is what? It's Christian. It's present. It's Christian. Present Christian. Okay? Now we have been released. So having died, 
past, to that by which we were bound, past, so that we serve present, and notice the Spirit, not in oldness of the letter. What should we say then is the law of sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced, past tense, in me, coveting of every kind, for in part the law, sin is dead. I was once alive, apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Tense? And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me, for sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment. Tense? Deceived me, and through it, tense? Killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Past. May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Now watch verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin, for what I am doing, I do not. What has happened, people? The tense has changed, and from this point out, the tense is present. It's been past, it's now present. It's not only present tense, and it's a major shift here, but also it's I. I, 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 I. Okay? 39 times in the rest of the text. Doug Moo says, the I doesn't mean Paul present, and the present doesn't mean present. Now, don't just dismiss Doug in this. Because Doug speaks for the entire Eastern church. The entire Greek part of the church has always said, this text does not apply to the Christian. It it applies to the unregenerate man who is not born again. The entire Western church has said that this applies to the Christian. Augustine is the hinge point. Augustine early, when he was first made a bishop, Augustine's was asked by somebody to tell him what he thought Romans 7 said, and he gave the historic thing which Origen had held to, which is it doesn't apply to Christians. All right? But Augustine got in a battle. He got in a number of battles, and that's why I honor him, because he was a bloody man. He was a man that was always contending for the faith. And the battle that he got in was with Pelagius and the Pelagians. And that battle defined his, his understanding of this text so that he reversed his position. And he came to the conclusion that this text referred to Christians. And ever since then, the Western church has believed as he believes, which is this is a text that refers to Christians. Paul is talking about himself. He is talking about other believers. He's talking in the present tense. The text defines the normal Christian life. Okay? Now, who was Pelagius and what did he believe? How was it that Augustine changed his position? You'll rarely hear me say this, but we don't have time for that. (laughs) Okay, okay. So, help me, I'm exercising discipline over myself. 
So in the first service, Jeff raised his hand. He said, R.C. Sproul did a great article on the fact that the entire church today is Pelagian. Not just the Roman Catholic, but the Protestant. All right? So he sent the link to Jody, and Jody's going to put it out over the church list. And apparently you can either listen to it or read it, whatever your preference is. All right? Now, the entire Western church since then has believed that this is written about Christians and the Greek part of the church and the early church fathers, specifically Origen, believe, no, it's written about unbelievers. Okay. Then, a number of scholars began to revise. And those of you who are scholars know that you have to make a living somehow. And a pretty good way to make a living in your discipline, in other words, to get tenure, to to get published, is to have a revisionist view of something, where you say, no, everybody before me was wrong. And so in the 20th century, there's been a tremendous movement on the part of Protestant scholars to say that everybody that came before them was wrong. And this movement was active enough that even John Murray at Westminster Seminary, when he wrote about it, spoke in past tense about the revisionist scholars who say it's not about the Christian. All right? Um, And so in the 20th century, all the scholarly movement, and it sort of started with two neo-Orthodox theologians. I'm sorry for those of you who don't know what that means. But it would be Bart and, and Bruner, yes. And so both Bart and Bruner were part of the revisionist movement. And if you know anything about biblical scholarship, those who are involved in it, you know that everybody has been doing obeisance to Bart in the last part of the 20th century. Even evangelicals have been doing obeisance to him because Bart was a very interesting man in that he recovered the doctrine of sin for Europe. If I may say that with Jürgen here. There were many good things about Bart, okay? And he was brilliant. And so it's very enticing for all the biblical scholars, including people at Wheaton who held to inerrancy, to look very fondly upon those who rejected inerrancy, because that's a basic tenet of neo-orthodoxy. It says it's not the words of Scripture that are inspired, but the concepts underneath the words. And so they can parse the difference between what the Holy Spirit was trying to say and what the Holy Spirit actually said, which is the whole basis of of gender-neutered Bibles. Okay, you're following all this. So now Doug Moo comes along at the end of the 20th century, and there's been this movement of scholarship away from saying that the Apostle Paul here is talking about Christians. And Doug Moo says that they're all right. Now, right away, you should think to yourself, is Doug Moo an eminent scholar? Yes, he is. Would Doug Moo feel pressure to reject his heritage of Reformed scholars and cast his lot in with the neo-Orthodox? Yes. I mean, we can all see that we all feel pressure based upon relationships. And if what you really value is your scholarship and being accepted in the pantheon of scholarly gods, 
you'd feel the pressure if all your peers, contemporaries, have gone in that direction. I just want you to acknowledge that scholars are susceptible to these kinds of pressures. And so Doug Moose says it doesn't apply to Christians. You all with me? That I is not referring to Paul in the present. Okay? And that the tense change does not indicate that he's talking about his present or anyone else's present. Okay, now, you all with me so far? Now, I want to jump over to something, okay? So set that here, keep it on a shelf, be aware of it. Now, jump over here. I've been saying recently to Mary Lee that I find within myself this sort of uh, innate this sort of knee-jerk, this kind of really basic principle inside me that I define the kingdom of God's borders according to my own personal borders. And there's been brewing in me an article where I say that, and some of you are going to learn two words and some of you are going to only learn one word, okay? That the boundaries of the kingdom of God are not simply congruent with the boundaries of the families of man, but they're conterminous. Now, congruent means sort of the same, but conterminous is identical. And all of us, certainly I, all of us believe that God has saved those who are in our family. All of us believe God has saved those who are members of our church. God, we all believe that those who are white are saved. We all believe those who are Americans are saved. We all believe those who... Well, but hold on, hold on. I think you do, actually. Come on, come on. Do you really think that you don't tend to define the boundaries of the kingdom of God according to your own kingdom's boundaries? We all do this. We all think that God... All right, let me put it a different way and maybe this will work with you. We all think that God likes the people we like. We like the people who like us. And therefore, God doesn't like the people who don't like us. I mean, come on. You, you, listen, if... Okay, all right. Okay, I'll settle down. We all do this. We all define the goodies according to our own relationships. This was the founding of this church. Jimmy Cuffey stood up in a meeting. Remember Jimmy Cuffey, professor of, of, of astronomy? And... He said, all right, now here's the deal. He said, on one side we have the goodies, and on the other side we have the baddies. And where are the goodies? Do do any of you remember this? Were any of you there? You remember this, yeah, yeah. And Tim Queering, who stood about 10 feet 7, and had a big beard, walked over to Jimmy And he put his hand on his shoulder, an emeritus professor, and pushed him back in 
into the sea, for which Rita, his wife, was greatly relieved. <laughs> I listen, Jimmy and Rita were at our house all the time. For birthdays, for holidays, we loved them. But this is what we tend to do. We tend to do this. Our children are saved, right? They have to be. And our friends are saved, and the people that don't like us aren't saved. Well, we'd never say that. We'd just say that God doesn't like them. But we'd never say that either. But we sure act that way. And we think that way. The Bible tells us that the boundaries of God's kingdom are contiguous with the family of God, but not coterminous. They are close to the same, but they're not the same. Now, why do I say they're close to the same? Because I have to shake this into you. In the Bible, when the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? The response of the apostles is, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. Okay? It actually says it in Scripture. And this is the theme we say. God says that he works with groups. God is not an individualistic God. He doesn't just deal with each of us one by one directly. God is pleased to use older women in the lives of you younger women and older men in the lives of you younger men, and those older men are called elders. And they're so helpful. And he says, obey them because they keep watch over your souls. Okay? It shouldn't be so scandalous to us, right? You need elders. God deals with us through groups, and those groups have leaders. In the home, it's called father and mother. Come on! It's no scandal. It's not a cult. You have a daddy, you have a mother, and they tell you what to do. And it's not because they want to control you, it's because they love you. God deals with groups. And so God promises that he'll work through fathers and mothers. God promises that he'll work through pastors and elders, shepherds. At the end of his life, Jesus said, I haven't lost one of those that you gave me. He was a shepherd of the disciples, except the son of perdition, whose doom was assured from the beginning of time. God works with groups. We know he makes promises for groups. He made promises to the children of Israel. He makes promises to the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. He says we're... One of you is gathered in prayer. There I am in the midst also. Well, no, that's actually not what it says. It says where two or more of you are gathered. So God is pleased to work through groups and to give promises that when you give yourself to the motherhood of the church, that this motherhood will be used to save you. Okay? It matters whether you're in church. It matters whether you listen to your elders. The boundaries of the kingdom of God are contiguous with the boundaries of the church of Jesus Christ and of your family if it's Christian. Okay, and it is. (laughs) That's the scandal. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? I mean, I just love it. 
here's my point in bringing this up. You know, I was talking about Doug Moo and the interpretation, the history of interpretation. Now I'm talking about the boundaries of the kingdom of God, right? And I'm saying that all of us tend to define the boundaries of the kingdom of God according to our own boundaries, our own affections, the way people do or don't like us, right? And it's natural, right? And there's some reason to do it scripturally. We should claim God's covenant promises for our children. Credo, pedo, I say that doesn't matter. We claim those promises. Now, of all the people that we tend to define on the basis of their relationship to us, okay, who do we do that most with? Nope. <laughs> this is funny. Nope. Although we do do that with, if he's, a, if he's my preacher, he has to be a Christian. I went into that quite a bit in the first service. You know, if God's used him working in my life, then he has to be a Christian. No, the person we do this most with is not even our wife. No, it's ourself. The person that we are most tempted to define as inside the kingdom of God is... I, me, mine, I want to talk about me. Because the person we're most in love with is ourselves. And I would say even those people who tend to be depressive, the reason they're depressive is because they're in such love with themselves. They're the perfect keeper of their own failures. (laughs) You know? Martin Lloyd-Jones has a great section on this in spiritual depression. If you... If you fight having trouble believing that God can save you, if you think your sin is too bad, if you're a depressive, read that book. Because it is blasphemy to say that even the righteousness of Jesus Christ is insufficient for you. And that's the essence of that position, of being a suicidal, depressive person, is you say that your wickedness is above the ability of the Lamb of God. A very proud position to hold. And so you think about the issue of relationships and the boundaries of the kingdom of God, and then you think about yourself. And honestly, most of us resolve the tension by giving ourselves to certain rituals. Because we can't bear uh, existential angst. (laughs) We can't bear to not know. Ultimately, that is the hardest thing to bear, is not knowing. At this point, I'm worried because I'm going to say some things that some of you are going to get very angry about. I'm not saying it to make you angry, but I must be faithful to the truth. And I'm not always. If you read the book on the church that was just issued, Church Reformed, you'll see me telling that it's regular for pastors to trim the truth. I do it. Every pastor does it. He'll avoid issues that he knows that his elders will yell at him for, or that his wife will 
We have a preacher here. He says, that's right. He said, that's right. It's most churches, whether it's through the sacraments and their practice of the sacraments, or whether it's through them telling you that if you said the sinner's prayer back in vacation Bible school and in grammar when you were in elementary school, that you can be a devil from hell living out in California. But they remember when you prayed to receive Jesus. Do you see it? That's a sacrament. It's the evangelical sacrament, prayers to receive Jesus. And that's what you trust in. Just as the Lutheran trusts in his baptism, just as the Roman Catholic trusts in the practice of the sacraments. We all have ways that we parse the state of our soul and tell ourselves that there's hope for us because of what? Well, because of things we've said or things that we do. And Reformed people do this just as much as everybody else. We tell ourselves we don't do it, but we do do it. The membership in the particular denomination, the membership in the particular church, our, our facility verbally with the word sovereignty and the words providence and the ability to wield predestination in a sensitive and, and, and gentle and yet firm way, <laughs> <You know? laughs> which is very hard to do with predestination. <laughs> and so all of us, all of us, come to church for the pastor to tell us that because we're here in his church, we are saved. Okay? And when we learn to do that perfectly, with our market segment carefully defined in such a way that we know we're not in a Lutheran church and so we shouldn't talk about baptism, we're in a Presbyterian church, and so we should talk about God's eternal decrees and his effectual call. And we all do this. None of us wants to be humble before God. And none of us wants to put our faith in Jesus Christ. Come on. Because it is a pain to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Because then nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. And if there's one thing none of us want to do, it's simply cling to the cross. Because the minute you cling to the cross, you have to begin to confess your sins because why would you cling to the cross unless you see your sins clearly? And so what we do is we invent ways to not see our sins clearly. (laughs) Well, that's a venial sin. It's not a mortal sin. I don't commit mortal sins, you know. Or, well, you know, some people think this and some people think that, or... You know, why are you talking about the length of women's and men's hair? You know, you think that's going to save you? Or, you know, I haven't had an abortion. I'm not gay. And, and, and these are all ways that we reassure ourselves 
that we're not as bad as the next guy and therefore we're saved. Because we all grade on a scale and all really most of us need is to be a little better than our next door neighbor. Okay, now listen to me. The people that say that the Apostle Paul is not speaking about himself and the normal Christian life are people who have stopped being humble before God. That's a bodacious statement. I've made it, I'll write it, I'll sign it. They are people who have lost touch with the depravity of their own heart. Doug Moo. Did you have him as a professor? You didn't, okay. Do we have any other Wheaties here? I guess you're the only one. My daughter-in-law is a Wheatie. There are people that have gone to Wheaton. Eric wanted to go to Wheaton, and I was thankful to God that he didn't. (laughs) Tell him it's true. I want to read to you a couple things from Eric's... I mean, not Eric. (laughs) That wasn't a Freudian slip, I promise you. (laughs) I want to read a couple of excerpts from uh, Doug Moo's commentary, okay? Um, He says... As I have argued above, the conflict that Paul depicts here, leading to defeat and despair, is a conflict he experienced as a Jew under the Mosaic law. Remember, the tense goes from past to present. He says I, he says we, we, all right? But it is a conflict he experienced as a Jew under the Mosaic Law. To what extent Paul was conscious of this conflict and his failure at the time, and that's his emphasis, of that conflict is difficult to ascertain. I don't have time to go into why that's a tell, but that's a tell. You know, because now he's saying he can write about it now in a way that is accurate about the past, and yet in the past he did not. And it's just like, that's a bridge too far, a hill too high, or however you're supposed to say that. Then he says this, Surely Paul knew that he, along with other Jews, succeeded in keeping many of the commandments and infringed only a small percentage of the whole. People, is that how you would describe your life before you came to Jesus? You would say that you keep many of the commandments and broke only a small percentage of the whole. But that's not the word he uses. He says, and infringed only a small percentage. This is his description of Jews. It just boggles your mind. How does anybody describe being outside of Christ in this way, keeping many of the commandments and infringing only a small percentage of the whole. It's, it, it is, it, that's a tell. That's a huge tell. Then he writes this. He says, all non-Christians are in a similar situation. So now he's broadening it from Jews who are not believers to non-Christians generally. He says, all non-Christians are in a similar situation and many, probably most... Christians can find in this description of nagging failure to do what is good an all-too-accurate reflection of their own experience. 
But without denying the similarity, I must say again that the conflict Paul describes here is indicative of a slavery to the power of sin as a way of life that is, in his emphasis, not typical nor even possible for the Christian. Okay? And then finally, the third that I want to read. Again, Doug Moo. He says, while it is true that Christians are still very much influenced by sin and will perhaps never finally overcome sin's influence in this life. Do you all understand why this is scandalous? You take Rita Cuffey. You take Enoch Follett. These are two people who define godliness in my life. And I knew them intimately. It is inconceivable to speak of Rita Cuffey or Enoch Follett. Take the most godly person you've ever known. And this is what he says about them. Perhaps they will never finally overcome sin's influence in their life. That perhaps indicates that there are Christians who overcome, finally overcome sin in their life. Now let me ask you, how many of you here, in a dark room with the lights off and no one watching, would lift your hand and say that that is true of you? That you have overcome the influence of sin in your life? How many of you? Listen, as I read Doug Moo this time, I just was sick to think that there are some people who are taught these things because I honestly don't know how they live. If, if there is a possibility that we can be perfect in this life and that that's what it means to be a Christian and that those of us who never get there have simply not had faith and that that's why we haven't gotten there. I cannot think of a teaching that would be more prone to cause despair among the people of God. I look at your faces and all your stories come to me because I love you. And I think about the sins that you've confessed to me. Or the sins that you've told me you don't commit, but I know you do. And I'd be waiting. (laughs) And so what? Are you not Christians? You remember my story about being in high school and I had a sin I I couldn't stop. I went to my senior pastor and I said to him, I have this sin. I told him what it was. I said, how do I deal with it? And he said to me, well, you need to give your life to Jesus. And I said, been there, done that. Actually, what I said was, I've done that about nine times now. I have prayed the sinner's prayer. Really meaning it. So now what? He said, well, you need to really mean it. I mean, that's not exactly, but that is what he said. And I left that place with no hope for my soul. 
And if you look at my life after that, there was no doctrine of indwelling sin in that man. Every single sermon of Mary Lee and me growing up ended with John 3.16. And there were two categories of people. There were people who had never meant it and people who really meant it. But what it really ended up producing was people who just simply lost the ability of confessing their sin. Because if they were sinning, then they weren't Christians. Do you understand this? But I'm telling you, Christians sin. And sin horribly. And can we please have a church again in America that allows serious sinners to come to the Lord's table? And can we as elders and older women of the church please love sinners? Real sinners like ourselves. And can we hire a pastor who's a sinner? And can we lay hands on a man and ordain him to the gospel ministry? He's a real sinner. And, and, and you say, well, this is scandalous. I say, no. Because sinners come to the cross day by day by day by day. And they die confessing their sins. I just don't understand how you can worship a God that you don't need anymore. You know, and, and, and all of us believe in repentance, but the church today only believes in repentance for coming to faith. But then they don't believe in repentance after coming to faith. It's like, you know, tell me a good story about how you were a devil from hell riding a Harley and it was chopped. You know, you know, tell me that story, how you were, you know, running the heroin rings, you know, like uh, what's, whatever that TV show is, you know, uh, bedraggled or bewitched or what's it called? No, not Breaking Bad. No, it's a, a, a gang. It's a, it's a motorcycle gang. What's Sons of... Yeah, Sons of Anarchy, you know. Tell me a Sons of Anarchy story, you know. And the minute you get done telling that story to the church, then they tell you, now shut up! That's the end of your story. Now send me another Sons of Anarchy. And we never allow people to tell stories of what God is doing now. And we have real sins being committed in our church. And yet, we're just not comfortable with real sins being considered committed by real real Christians. And yet, look at the New Testament epistles. They're filled with the most horrible things. Even when excommunication is talked about, they say, for the salvation of his soul. Hand him over to Satan so he'll be saved. This is mind-boggling. Next week, I will go into... um, Specific arguments for why I'm absolutely certain, without a shadow of a doubt, that this describes the normal Christian life. And if your doctrine causes you to reject that, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to listen to me on this again next week. But honestly, the life of this church is permeated by this doctrinal commitment. Otherwise, we wouldn't need elders. Okay? And we are a church that loves sinners. Because we see ourselves and we think we ought to love ourselves and so we ought to love sinners. And listen, 
There are incredible reasons to know that this does pertain to sinners. And if you want to know what they are, do what I do and listen to the, instead of the whole book of Romans, which I do while I cut grass every, every week, listen just to chapter 7. Listen to it over and over again. And verses 13 or 14 through the end of the chapter, listen for the things that you as a Christian cannot identify with. Okay? Because after all, the other people say this doesn't apply to Christians. And so what I want you to do is try to cultivate, as you listen to the second half of chapter 7, the ability of saying, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me. All right? And then listen to it again, and listen for the parts of it that you absolutely, completely know, existentially, deep. And honestly, I defy you to name one phrase in the second half of Romans 7 that you don't completely identify with. And then... I ask you, how hopeful will you be when you see that? That the Apostle Paul does mean I and we. And he is speaking in the present tense. Christians desire three things with regard to sin. You remember this. Justification, that it will not condemn. Sanctification, that it will not reign over us. You know, R-E-I-G-N. And glorification that it will not be. Don't switch justification, sanctification. That's campus crusade. Don't switch glorification and sanctification. Because that's, I won't name it, but bad juju. Okay? I want to close with a scripture lesson, or a scripture uh, verse, which two of them actually. The first one, they're both from Philippians, okay? And here's the first one, Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then why? It says, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who is accomplishing his pleasure and his will with you. And it seems like they're contradictory. You know, why would you work out your salvation if it's God that's working in you? That's scripture. Yeah, it's just like, it's beautiful. And then one last scripture. And I want to say to you that when I doubt my salvation and, and think I can't possibly be a Christian because of my sin, all right? This is the verse that always comes back to me. Philippians 1, 6, the Apostle Paul says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so have that hope. Grab his promises and say, you've begun the work. Don't give up on me. Complete it, would you please? I love you all. Let's come to the Lord's table.